Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kichanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu, la'asok b'divrei Torah, v'harevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka b'finu ufi amka b'tisrael. Venia anaknu, vedzetzainu, vedzetzae, am kabit Israel, Kulanu yodea shemeka, velom de Torateka lishma. Baruch ata Adonai, ham lamet Torah leamo Yisrael. Baruch aba beshem Adonai. Bimhera veamenu. May it be soon in our days that we see our King, Mashiach Yeshua, with the revealing of the final redemption and the, Be- the building of the Beit Mikdash. All right, so. First of all, Rosh Chodesh Tov for the month of Adar to everybody. Bezrat Hashem, as time allows, I will uh, plan to share some insights on the month of Adar from that wonderful illegal book of uh, the wisdom of the Hebrew months. Uh, if Ish Pela beats me to it, I will not be upset about that. But Ruch Hashem. So real quick, I just wanted to do a quick podcast on what's called, what's been lovingly called Rabbi Trails. Uh, There's been the Aliyah Day, the live comments that go on and, you know, Rabbi Griffin, a.k.a. Captain Israel, will be throwing down on some amazing insights. And then all of a sudden he'll be like, you know, as an aside or and I digress, you know, and things like that. Well, when those things happen, did you know that that is like the very precise way that our oral Torah is portrayed? Like literally from the Midrash Rabbah to Talmud to even Mashiach Yeshua himself, because these quote unquote digressions or they're actually called rabbit trails, but I do love the Kashrut version, the rabbi trail. It's absolutely amazing. So I want to just share a few examples of this. And Bezrat Hashem, this will give us some comfort and will actually help us to even uh, partake of that on our own, which would be really amazing. Because these rabbi trails are where the get you some happens. It's it's definitely something that's very wonderful. So I could ge- I could keep going on about how amazing rabbi trails are, but let me just give you a few of them. Obviously, I think it'd be great to start with some Talmud straight out of Suga 51b. So you know the Talmud, right? Is like that's the king crown of the oral Torah. Like, that's where everything flows from. So when you get your Midrash, when you get your uh, Gematrias, when you get your uh, Agada, when you get your uh, Halakhic uh, commentaries and things like that, you'll get them from the Talmud, primarily from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not to be confused with Mishnah, which is what the writings of Rambam, uh, one, one of his works of writing has been called the Mishneh Torah. And he basically spent time, like lots of time, to go through basically Talmud and Jewish literature and, uh, and basically, for lack of a better term, simplify it. So you'll get people who from time to time come up and go, well, that's not written in the Mishneh Torah. 
And it's just kind of like, okay, so that was a, a one person's perspective of simplifying the Talmud and different halakhic points. And so if we're really thinking that we need to go with that and you're wrong if you don't, well, then you might as well not be upset about people who've created a new religion because of the writings of Paul, because that would be the same thing. Furthermore, there is another voluminous work called the Shulchan Aruch, and not everybody follows it. We all read it, and there are some great points in there that we all glean from, but all of it is not written in English, first of all, and the part that is written in English is what's called the Kitzer, which is the small condensed version and that's basically, again, summarizing the big voluminous work. And again, the Shulchan Aruch is not the Talmud, but obviously it would have parts of Talmud in it. And then when you go on with thinking, OK, well, what about all the Hebrew in the full version of it? OK, so unless you're going to spend lots and lots of time going through that, which people do uh, go by sections, which is beautiful. But again, if you're going to really put the Shulchan Aruch on the pedestal, uh, again, you'd still need to make sure you're balancing everything out going by going back to the Mishnah and the Gemara. Because again, that's going to be your, your best way to, you know, navigate uh, as you're looking at these texts. And furthermore... Unless you are a Beit Dean yourself or a rabbi yourself, uh, you would not be able to give anything that is binding for uh, convicting people, condemning people, or judging people, or things like that. And if your Beit Dean has made a ruling, again, emphasis on your, then that's what you go by. Because at the end of the day, the rabbinic establishment is what we have until the Sanhedrin is back in business. So the Sanhedrin will only be back in business with the return of Eliyahu, who will proceed announcing Mashiach ben David, a.k.a. Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. So when that happens, that's when we'll get back on track and have all of our our service like it needs to be and all that goodness. But until then, you need to pick your community. You need to pick your rabbi. You need to pick your bait dean that you will be subjecting yourself to. And if you don't like how they do it, then you might want to reconsider why you're even calling them your rabbi, calling them your bait dean, or calling such and such place you attend synagogue your synagogue. If you're not okay with it, you should basically, and as politely as possible, refrain from attending, refrain from stirring up dissension in that community. This is what's been happening over the years, actually, at Sar Shalom, which, you know, I have to give credit to the Beit Dean themselves, because if it was me, I'd be just putting people in the sleeper hole, like Taz Mission, figure four. The sharpshooter, like I'd go old school WWE style on people because, I mean, again, I have no room to talk because this happened to me at one point. I was the person going against the bait dean. But obviously everyone's heard that story before. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that, you know, 
the bait dean has done such a beautiful job of not just ejecting people like one of those uh referees in the basketball games that technical foul the coaches a certain amount of times and then eject them out of the game just like they would do to the players same thing so uh, but they've held their ground kept the boundaries stayed firm to the halakha which it's a beautiful halakha Halakha is, again, it's not meant to be this robotic, like it's only this and it's nothing else. And make sure you're doing this to the T. The Halakha is to help you, okay, as you grow and develop. When many of us come into observance, we don't really know anything. Well, no, we don't know anything. Let's just put it that way. If you haven't been observant before and then you convert and you start being observant, you don't know anything you need to subject yourself to leadership and be humble. That's the best way to put it. Hopefully uh, you can hear that. Uh, I myself have to make sure I hear that because there are sometimes, you know, you can feel like you study so much and it's just like, yeah, I got this. And it's like, no, you don't. You haven't been doing this for 20 plus years. Um, you know, you didn't grow up in a Jewish household you know, all this kind of stuff. So always take that into consideration. So when it comes to the Talmud, the Talmud is split between the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Gemara is, again, this is where the the sages, Rabbi Mir, Rabbi or Reish Lakish, you know, uh, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Elazer, you know, and so on and so forth. They'll give commentary on uh, what the Mishnah brings down. So the Mishnah is basically the recounted mitzvot from the Torah. Mishnah means a second or repeat. And so that's why Deuteronomy, aka Devarim, or better known as Deuteronomy, BKA Devarim. Okay, so Deuteronomy is better known as Devarim. And uh, so that is actually called a Mishneh Torah or Mishnah Torah, Slika, uh, because Moshe basically gave us a recounting of the whole entire Torah and Sefer Devarim. So if you really wanted cliff notes on the Torah, you would go to Devarim. But obviously, there's a lot more than what Devarim covers, because we're, how are you going to learn about Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Noach, all that kind of stuff, you know. And then again, there's specific stuff in Shemot that uh, is not in Devarim. So obviously that's why it's five books and that's why we study it. So when you go into the Mishnah and the Gemara, you'll get these rabbi trails. So I'm going to pick up in Sukkah 51b from the Talmud Bavli. And it says this, the Mishnah continues. Now, it already I'm already picking up in the middle of a rabbi trail because they were already on something that the Mishnah said and the Gemara just came in with all the leg sweeps and the ninja stars and the swinging from the, you know, rafters coming in, dropping down on people, uh, insights. And so now they're like, okay, but we're going to get back to what the Mishnah was saying. <laughs> so anyway, so that way, uh, you can see, or that there you can see we're already in the middle of a rabbi trail. So we're going to start where this rabbi trail is continuing, and then we're going to quickly see how it goes off before it comes back. 
So check this out. So it says the Mishnah continues at the conclusion of the first festival day, which again, we're talking about Sukkot. All right. So at the conclusion of the first festival day of Sukkot, etc., the priest and the Levites descended from the Israelites courtyard to the women's courtyard where they would introduce a significant repair. I was about to rabbi trail, but I'm just going to let the let the uh, Talmud continue here. Says the Gemara asks, what is this significant repair? Starts with a question. We have a statement and then there's a question. Rabbi Eliezer said that is or that it is like that which we learned. The walls of the women's courtyard were smooth without protrusions initially. Subsequently, they affixed protrusions to the wall surrounding the women's courtyard each year thereafter for the celebration of the place of the drawing of the water. The water drawing ceremony, basically, I'm rabbi trailing now, the place where Yonah the prophet uh, received his gift of prophecy was from this specific festival. And because another rabbi trail inside of this rabbi trail, because our rabbi and his household just got back from Eretz Israel, they were telling us about going to the pool of Shiloh, which was the very pool that they went to to get the water to bring it back to the temple to pour it out on the altar. They said that was the that is a very, very, very steep um, climb, whether you're going down or going up. It took supernatural ability in order for them to bring as much water as they did to go up and down that thing, because they did this every day. And then on the final day, Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of Sukkot, they would go up and down that mountain seven times because they would do seven circuits around the altar on that day. And again, this is the Hoshiana Hoshiana Hatzlichana. Adonai save, may the uh, Adonai Hoshiana, Adonai save, Adonai Hatzlichana, Adonai save now, you know, and so send salvation now. And this again was when Yeshua stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me. You know, put your hope in me and out of you will flow rivers of living water. So like you want to have your own water drawing ceremony, you know, then come into Mashiach Yeshua, who is the Torah made flesh. So all of that. Okay, so I've rabbit trailed off of a rabbit trail and so on and so forth. Back to Talmud here says this water drawing ceremony. So the walls were smooth. The Levites or the priests and the Levites would go to from the Israelite courtyard to the women's courtyard. They would introduce a significant repair. Rabbi Eliezer says that the walls were smooth in the women's court and subsequently they have fixed protrusions to the wall of the women's courtyard each year thereafter for the celebration of the place of the water drawing or the uh, the place of the drawing of the water. They place wooden planks on these projections and surrounded the courtyard with a balcony, which is called a Gezus, Gezustra, 
and they instituted that the women should sit above the men. So they put basically like all these different protrusions on the wall and it's like, oh, we're going to turn this into a balcony. And so now this is going to be the balcony where the women sit. Okay, now check it out. So right from that, it says the sages taught in a tosefta, which is not really part of Mishnah Gemara, but it's like a a well-known saying that was around that time. And so they put it in here. So Tosefta is kind of like, not really, but it's a lead-in. And then it says, initially, women would stand on the inside of the women's courtyard closer to the sanctuary, or closer to the sanctuary to the west, and the men were on the outside in the courtyard and on the rampart. And they would come to conduct themselves with inappropriate levity and each other's company as the men needed to enter closer to the altar when the offerings were being sacrificed. And as a result, they would mingle with the women. This is probably why Makita is a thing. All right. I just rabbit trail sleek. Huh? Therefore, the sages instituted that women should sit on the outside and the men on the inside. And still they would come to conduct themselves with inappropriate levity. Therefore, they instituted the in the interest of complete separation that the women would sit above and the men below. The Gemara asked, how could one do so, i.e. alter the structure of the temple? But isn't it written with regard to the temple, all this I give you in writing, as the Lord has made me wise by his hand upon me, even all the works of his pattern, First Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen, meaning that all the structural plans of the temple were divinely inspired. How could the sages institute changes? Rav said they found a verse and interpreted it homiletically and acted accordingly. It is stated, the land will eulogize each family separately, the family of the house of David separately and their women separately, the family of the house of Natan separately and their women separately. Zechariah 12, 12. This indicates that at the end of the at the end of days, a great eulogy will be organized during which men and women will be separate. They said, and these, and are these matters not inferred a fortiori? For if in the future, at the end of days, referred to in this prophecy, when people are involved in a great eulogy, and consequently the Yetzahara does not dominate them as typically during mourning and appropriate thoughts, and conduct are less likely. And nevertheless, the Torah says men separately and women separately. Then now that they are involved in the celebration of the drawing of the water and as such, the evil inclination dominates them since the celebration lends itself to levity. All the more should men and women be separate. I propose the eulogy at the end of days, the Gemara asks, what for what is the nature of this eulogy? All right, so I'm going to end that account there. But as you can see, we've gone from saying, all right, the end of the festival day, 
water drawing ceremony. We're going to go from the courtyard to the women's courtyard. And it's like, okay, so the women's courtyard is going to have a new uh, modification added. Here's the announcement. It's like, wait, wait, why are we modifying it? Well, let's talk about this. And then let's talk about this. And then let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And oh, since we're talking about all that, we're going to go into talking about the Yetzirah. Because, by the way, this is where it gets into uh, the death of the Yetzahara and the death of Mashiach bin Yosef have uh, the equal footing as far as the mourning goes. And so uh, some people say it was the death of Mashiach bin Yosef that they were mourning. As it says, they will mourn for him as, as if for a firstborn son. Uh, they will look upon him who they've pierced, like that whole thing. And it's like, is it Mashiach or is it the Yetzahara? And then you obviously take... He who knew no sin became sin. It's like, oh, yeah, because it is both. So anyway, so there you go. There's a Talmud rabbi trail. And going over here to uh, the Midrash Rabbah for Parsha Taruma, which is this week. And um, it says in Midrash Rabbah 34.1. Speaking on verse 20 or chapter 25, verse 10, it says they shall make an ark, an aron of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Ve'asu aron atze shetim. Okay, atze shetim is acacia wood. So shatim is the word for acacia, atze is the word for tree. So we're going to look at that phrase. We have a vav, an aleph, an ayin, and a sheen. Does that make a word? Asav. Yep, you can have the word for asav. You take the first letter of each of those words and you add in the aleph. So asav and then aleph. So Aleph Asav. So if you did just kind of a preliminary letter drop on that, I'm already rabbit trailing. I'm supposed to be doing this. Okay. Anyway, rabbi trailing on this, if you just look at that phrase, you see what unifies Asav, which is kind of an interesting thought, right? Because Asav is the one whom Hashem hates. We obviously read that from one of the prophets, but we remember that Mashiach is covered in Asav. So when the Aleph is with Asav, which the Aleph is the divine name of Hashem, because the Aleph breaks down to two Yods and one Vav, which is the Gamatria of 26, which is the divine name, the Yod and Hey and Vav and Hey. So that happens through making an ark of acacia wood, because what is the ark? It is the Torah, and it is that which brings us into life and resurrection, aka it redeems us, because by the word of God, we're born anew, and so when you look at, sleek God for the sniffles, when you look at the very fact that you're going to have the element that brings redemption to even those who are outsiders and even to our current exile, because we're in the exile of Asav, which is Edom. And this is where Mashiach said we need to be making converts until he returns so that we bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, all of that good stuff. So 
Notice the Gentiles are converted. They're not left as they are. You come as you are, but you leave very, very differently. Anyway, just like when you go to the mikvah, you come as you are, and then you leave very, very differently. So through the ark, making it acacia wood, all of that, right? So they're going to comment on this statement, but here's what it says. The Midrash will discuss how God contracted his presence into the tabernacle and further into the tiny space of the ark. And it will expound a verse in Job as alluding to this contraction. However, first, however, it first expounds the Job verse alluding to a different way that God contracts himself. So it's like, all right, we're going to describe this verse and we're going to talk about the fact of God contracting himself and contracting himself. So a double contraction is Hashem going into the ark because he has to first contract and fit inside the tabernacle and then from there inside the ark. So it says we're going to explain all this by using a verse from Job. Okay, so it goes through that and then it says the Midrash has interpreted Elihu's statement, which was from the Job passage. If you uh, would like to know what Job passage, it is Job 37, 23 and 26, 14. And do they do another one? Nope. They go into Devarim and then a Tehillim 29, 4. And then they go over here to this point. That I'm saying now, the Eliyahu or Elihu's statement, the Almighty, we have not discovered him uh, great in strength as referring to God's limiting himself in the ways described above in order to enable man to serve him. And now expounds Elihu's statement as alluding to God's limiting himself to the small space of the tabernacle and further to the even smaller space of the ark the subject of our Exodus verse. So it does that, right? It keeps going. Does that little explanation. It says, the ark enjoys pride of place as the first item mentioned in God's command to build a tabernacle. The Midrash explains why. Does that. And then it says, it does like a little explanation and then it does another one. And then it says the unique aspect of the Ark's construction. The Midrash cites a teaching that will serve to explain further why the Torah insisted that every Jew participate in the building of the Ark. Does that. And then it says Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which is the writer of the Zohar, concludes his teaching by explaining another discrepancy. So, I mean, we're just going back and forth and back and forth and just like talking about this and talking about this. But it's all a rabbi trail about making the ark. So just so you know, um, that's a rabbi trail in the rabbah. And I want to bring it home with probably one of my favorites. Mark 7. This is the biggest rabbi trail I mean, it's probably not the biggest, but the one that's in front of me right now, let's put it that way. The rabbi trail that's in front of me from the rabbi of all rabbis 
And yes, that is Mashiach Yeshua because the Torah is the one who is the rabbi. And if any rabbi considers himself above that rabbi, then whoa, don't call him a rabbi. Those are the people you don't call a rabbi, by the way. Anyone who is subservient to this rabbi, that's who you call a rabbi. Because why? Because they're going to lead you to follow that rabbi, which is going to put you in what's called Echad, a.k.a. going to put you in the uh, the lineage of what's called a Shliach, a, uh, a person who has been designated with the message. So that way, when you're giving the message, you're basically able to speak in the name of the one who sent you. So... If you think about Mashiach speaking with the words of Hashem, it's because he has no words of his own. It's the words of Hashem. So, you know, if you just kind of think about the laws of Shliach and then you'll go from there. But anyway, Mark 7, it says, this, by the way, is where, yep, Rabbi Trail, you caught it. Good job. High five. All right, cool. This is where people say Yeshua made all foods clean, which is probably a tangent that is like ridiculous because nobody's talking about eating here as far as uh, kashrut laws. We're not talking about kashrut. We're talking about laws of purity and and def- things that defile you. And obviously unkosher food defiles you but before we even get to understanding that what is the point that's being addressed well if we read it very very slowly without thinking about our stomach as our god this is what it says now the pharisees and some of the torah scholars who had come from jerusalem gathered around yeshua and they saw that some i would say some of his Talmudim were eating bread with unclean hands. That is not netilat yadayim. I just made that word up. If you did not net, netilat yadayim your hands, then according to this group here, they'd be like, you are just vile and filthy. Because why? Verse 3, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jewish people do not eat unless they wash their hands up to the elbow, keeping the tradition of the elders. Again, notice it says tradition. If you've listened to the Mishpatim C-Class Part 2, you would see that one of the rabbinic mitzvot, like i.e. it wasn't written down in the Torah, but the rabbis came up with it. And I'm talking like the... Daniels and the Mordecai's, the Zacharias and Haggai's, those kind of people. Uh, they came up with the fact that we should do a hand washing before we eat bread. So tradition of the elders. Here we go. Verse four. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing. It's like, man, ain't nobody eating until you go netilat yadayim yourself. OK, and it says. There are many other, say many, many other traditions they have received and hold, such as washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, okay, i.e. toveling your dishes, which, by the way, is a Torah uh, commandment, 
but when you get into certain uh dishes that you're supposed to tovel, you know, there's different levels on that and certain things you don't have to tovel and it's just like so people tovel it anyway because they're going beyond the letter of the law. It says the Pharisees and Torah scholars question Yeshua. Why don't your Talmudim walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why do they eat bread with unwashed hands? What you realize those are two separate questions, right? Because it's like, well, what do you mean they don't walk by the tradition of the elders? You know, because what if they're doing other stuff like wearing a head covering? And what if they're doing other stuff like lighting candles on Shabbat? What if they're doing other things like what they did on the last Seder, singing the Hallel, celebrating Hanukkah? What about all that? Because that'll be the answer to that question, because they totally did that, right? So it's like, okay, so you can't really ask us why we don't follow the tradition of the elders. But anyway, second question, why do they eat bread without saying Natilah Yadigin? And it's like, can you really not eat bread unless you say Natilah Yadigin? What if you don't have a wash cup? You know, what if uh, you can't really fulfill that for some logistical reason? That, that wasn't taken into account here. But such is the way, yes, I have rabbi trailed on my, this is all about rabbi trails. This is why this happens. Okay. Anyway, so this is usually the case when people come at you. And yes, I use the phrase, quote unquote, come at you. They'd be like, man, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? You're not even doing that appropriately. If somebody comes at you with that kind of attitude, consider the source. You should know that anyone who's coming to correct you, there's a certain way to approach it, and that would not be one of them. And they basically invalidate themselves when they approach you, first of all, in any kind of manner that is uh, haughty, arrogant, abrasive. Uh, If it makes you get cold chills, if it makes you feel shamed or embarrassed, um, then you don't want to do that. Okay, you you cannot receive something like that. Now, if the person is very reluctant, they're like, hey, I don't want to say this. Um, And they really mean it. It's not like a fake front because some people can go, well, you know, I don't really want to have to tell you this, but uh, you're mixing meat and dairy and it's oneg and, you know, it's a dairy oneg. And like, why are you doing that? You know, and I hate to tell you, don't do that, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, people, you, I mean, you'll know the difference. If they really want to tell you something, they're going to pull you aside, talk to you privately, ask you what's going on, you know, and, and really get into there. Because when you're, when you're going to help somebody, you know, you're going to do it in a way that is uh, respectful, first of all, and you're going to do it in a polite manner and in a very upright, above reproach manner. You won't be all like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you do that? And you're already eating hollow. Like, why? You know, this is a, this is a thing, you know, obviously, it's really hard to not do that at an Arab Shabbat because at an Arab Shabbat, we make the time. And we encourage everyone to do Natilat Yadim. However, if someone showed up late or, you know, someone's never, ever done it before, which, by the way, in this case here, Mark 7, uh, one of the Talmudim of Mashiach was a zealot. So it was just amazing. He wasn't killing anybody. So there's that. So, uh, So back to the point. 
someone who's never done that to that yada game before don't even know what the significance is. It's like, why are you going to come down on them for? This is this is a beautiful time to teach them that to that yada game. Hey, have you ever done that to that yada game? Can I show you? You know, something like that. All right, back on point. See, this is this is how rabbi trails work. And he said to them, all right, Mashiach is not going to answer their question. He's going to rabbi trail with a point. And this is going to be one of those things where it's like, you want to know the answer? Well, here's what you need to consider. Rightly did Yeshiyahu Isaiah prophecy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain. They worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Yeshiyahu 29, 13 to be exact. Okay. So Mashiach says, I will answer your question with this statement from the prophets. And then it says, Having left behind the commandment of God, you hold on to the tradition of men. He also telling them, you, he was also telling them, you set aside the commands of God in order that you may validate your own tradition. For Moshe said, honor your father and your mother and he who speaks evil of his father or mother must be put to death. So now he swerved over to Yeshayahu. Now he's going to swerve over to the Torah. So he works his way all the way back from the prophets, all the way to the Torah and gets to the main point. He says, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever you might have gained from me is Corbin. That is an offering to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, making void the word of God with your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many, say many, many such things. Then Yeshua called the crowd again. He's like, all right, y'all, everybody, heads up. Which, by the way, that part that he just dropped is from... um. I believe it is Parsha Matot, which is in Bamibar uh, in chapter 30, where there's the whole uh, Torah dropkick about uh, vows. So you're vowing and doing all this stuff. So he's basically saying people are like, no, it's Corbin. It's my vow to Hashem. I vowed it as Corbin. So therefore, I don't have to support my parents. And then it says, and you do many such things. So you're using the Torah to, to do your own thing, basically, as opposed to using the Torah to help you change and grow. So it says, then Yeshua called the crowd again and began saying to them, hear me, everyone, and understand there is nothing outside that can make him unholy by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of the man that makes man, that makes the man unholy. And then that's when the parasthetical statement is, and by this, Yeshua made all things clean. So it's just kind of like, okay, so is this really a good time to bring up 
everything's kosher now, no matter if it said, uh, don't eat this in two chapters of the Torah. It's like, really, this is not the time to put that there because you're missing the point. Yeshua is telling us, don't void the word of God for the sake of your own agendas, which, by the way, is an example of voiding the word of God for the sake of your own agenda, because you just said, let's make void the word of God by using the word of God, because <laughs> Yeshua totally speaks with the words of God, so he never spoke his own words. So there's that. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, talk about Rabbi Trails and there you go. So hopefully uh, this was a good example and demonstration of it. And hopefully you can see that, you know, it's really beautiful to have the opportunity to do Rabbi Trails and that it, it just gives much more support and it builds a beautiful edifice uh, for the information to go forth. And it's just downright cool. Just already, just show enough. Amazing. And I'll tell you, when Rabbi Griffin on Aliyah, because today was Aliyah 3, and yesterday on Aliyah 2, he did uh, Sopar Shah Taruma Aliyah 2 for this year, not last year. Uh, he got into the whole thing about the Yom Kippur goat and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, no, you did not just do that. So anyway, the sprinkling of the blood and all that kind of stuff and atonement. It was just it was amazing. So stuff like that it just takes it over the top i mean as opposed to just sticking straight to what he was reading it's just like let's swerve <laughs> and let's go down a tangent you know and it's like mm, so good so may it be like sweetened words of torah in our mouth as we continue forth and endure the rabbi trails and to just know this is a part of our heritage rabbi trails like parables, like, you know, read a verse, you'll hear a parable, you'll hear some commentary, then it'll be like, oh, yeah, and about that, you know, go over here to this. So Rabbi Trails all the way. So bless you, fellow Lapidniks who came up with that term. It is so awesome. And every one of you, may you be blessed. May we all hasten the redemption so that we can soon see the final gathering in of all the exiles of Yerushalayim, see the resurrection of the dead, catch up with the homeboy homeboys of the Tanakh, you know, people like Shamuel, talk to him in person, and people like, you know, Melek David, you know, which is going to obviously have quite the line uh, if you're trying to talk to him, because so many people probably are going to want to. But anyway, I mean, just opening our mind to this because, you know, we have to prepare ourselves for the redemption. We can't just be like, ah, redemption, Mashiach's on clouds and like pillars of fire everywhere and it's ridiculous and trumpet sounds or shofar blasts and whatnot and lots of people waking up and eyes opening and temple is coming down and everything. It's just like, whoa. So, Yeah. Anyway, I can continue to go on with that, but I will not. But I will say, let us all say, Baruch Abba, Bishem Adonai. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vechaye olam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah.